I wanted to do something where I'm on my own. You know, I'm on my own. I can still enjoy it. I can have good food with a very fun environment. And that's how we term all our restaurants as fun dining. So it's not casual, it's not fine, it's fun dining. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Indian chef and Unapologetic Foods co-founder Chintan Panya is a James Beard Award winner and runs some of the best restaurants in New York, including Ada, Damaka, Sema, Rowdy Rooster, and his latest Bengali triumph, Masala Walla and Sons. I wanted to know what it was like running hit after hit after hit. I also wanted to talk about regional Indian cooking and how most Indian restaurants in America focus on such a narrow spectrum of recipes. And I wanted to talk about cookbooks and the one Chintan and his crew at Unapologetic Foods is working on. Man, I'm excited about that cookbook, and I really love this conversation. Chintan Panya, welcome to Taste Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. I mean, I'm like taking a little pause here. I'm just like... You're 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 making my favorite food in New York right now, and I mean it fully. It's delicious. Thank you, thank you. It means a lot. <laughs> I I have spoken on our show about Masala Wallen Sons waiting in the rain for like forty five minutes and and having one of the most extraordinary meals and and just a new revelation with mustard seeds. <laughs> Holy shit! And then um, the maca. I went last week, and wow, amazing. Thank you. You won a James Beard Award last year. You're on your way to opening new spots. We'll get into it. I want to get into the name first, Unapologetic Foods. It's the it's the umbrella operation for all of your restaurants, Ada, Damika, Rowdy Rooster, Masala Walla. I'm forgetting one. Sema. Sema, duh, obviously, Sema, <laughs> old school. What were you apologizing for? Let's like what what was the what was the apology? Culturally, what has happened with us is that our culture teaches us that it's Atiti Devo Bhava. That means that a customer or a guest is a god. And in that part of pleasing the customer and everything, we were losing the identity where we were actually cooking a food to please other people. And we were not working on the integrity of the actual cuisine. And I think when we started our company and started to, uh, you know, slowly build this organization one step at a time, uh, one of the things that we realized that we are not cooking the food that we enjoy to eat. Right. We are cooking the food which people think is Indian food and people will be happy eating it. And what we decided was let's cook the actual, the real Indian food that we believe in that we love to eat when we go back home, that we want our mothers to cook for us and not something that people have been eating for long enough. It makes so much sense when you say it that way. India is a country, three times the population in the United States, one-third the land mass, yeah. and we're eating food that's relegated mostly to the north. It's, it's not even north. I would say it's a commercialized Indian food. Uh, the entire cuisine of this 1.4 billion people is compartmentalized in seven, eight dishes or yeah. nine dishes. Yeah. That also comes from a very one specific region. That also is a very commercialized version of it. So it's not even that real version of it. It's a very commercialized version. And 
we saw this as a big opportunity where we wanted to focus on doing that real food that every Indian craves to eat but doesn't have opportunity to eat it. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about these dishes, these seven or eight canonical dishes, I mean, they're still pretty delicious. They are good. I'm not saying... And please, uh, I always say to people that, you know, nobody's opening up a restaurant to serve you bad food. Right. Everybody has a vision. You know, it's like somebody making a movie. Everybody has a style of making a movie. And somebody, the director of the movie, has a vision to make that movie. And he's making it that way. So it's not wrong or right. It is just the vision of the people who are executing it. And I genuinely feel that a lot of people are doing good work with it. It's just that it doesn't align with the vision that we have. I want to get your bio first because it's cool. You're, you're not just a chef and, and co-owner of, of Unapologetic Foods, but you're a DJ. You're a cake smasher. I'm thinking like Steve Aoki, the guy who, who oftentimes smashes cakes on stage as a DJ. <laughs> what does that mean? So DJ being the fact that uh, I'm not like a professional DJ DJ. <laughs> it's just that every restaurant that we have, if you whatever music you listen to, the playlist is curated by me. Really? Yes. On your phone. It's like live. Those playlists are there. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, I have Spotify on my phone and when I'm driving, I'm listening to music. And when I listen to a song or something, I'm like, oh my God, this will go well in this restaurant. Mm -hmm. So I go back, then I put it on the list of that particular restaurant. (laughs) So it is, uh, you know, it's like uh, we have built up this entire group with, uh, it's, it's a funny story. It's not that we had like serious amount of liberty to spend money and do it. So everything was taken up by one person as an external job. And when we were doing the music, I'm like, ah, I know this music. I'll do it. Let's not, you know, get a proper thing or something. Mm-hmm. Let's cut the cost. So the, the, the intention was to control the cost as much as possible so that we can open the restaurant on a bare budget and then take it from there. And then when the b- playlist happened, a lot of people kept on asking, where did you get this playlist? Where did you? <laughs> it was yeah, funny. It's thing. all you, man. Yeah, what so, about cake? What is it? What's up with this cake smasher? What does that mean? I, I love smashing cakes on people. So every time there's somebody's birthday, uh, there's actually somebody's birthday, I smash cakes. And then it just became a norm in the company that we have to smash the cakes. Is there a cake smasher concept that's in the works? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. It's just You're for fun. fun. No. It's just for fun. And uh, yeah, I just got my, I just got smashed. I was the last person who got smashed in December for my birthday. Oh, so. I love it. So it's it's more of an internal tradition. I love this. Yeah, it's an internal thing. It's a team thing. You have many restaurants, but I want to focus on two because I have the, the most recent experience of them. So first at Masala Wall and Sun in Park Slope, yeah. um, Bengali cuisine, right? Yes. That is the focus. Now, I want to get into what that means, but like my, the revelation with mustard seeds has been just like, I can't stop thinking about that flavor that you, you showered on us with that, with that experience. <laughs> they loved it. So let's talk about what, what is, what is going on at that restaurant just reviewed by the New York Times. Nice job. Well played. Thank you. Congrats. Thank you. So what happened is that the original Masala Wala opened up in 2011. So Ronnie is my business partner and Ronnie opened up this restaurant for his dad. And Ronnie is a Bengali. So Ronnie is a Bengali. His um, obviously entire family is Bengali, immigrated from Western West Bengal, which is Bengal, Calcutta, I think uh, 30 years back. And uh, we are talking about this gentleman who's right now, I would say 76, 77 or 78, came to this country when he was 50 years old. And Ronnie opens up the restaurant for his dad. And his dad is one of the most gracious hosts and phenomenal cook. 
and his passion lies in cooking Bengali food. So he opens up this restaurant in 2011 with the intention of serving Bengali food to New Yorkers. The guy would come every day, cook the food, and nobody would eat it because everybody wanted the regular Indian, commercialized Indian food. Back to the seven dishes that we talked about. Yes, back to seven to nine dishes. And he would, poor guy would cook with all his heart and soul. And then had to throw it away. And for three months, it happened like that. And he kept on losing money. Obviously, money was a very big impact over there. He kept on losing money. And he's like, what do I do? And then he realized that everybody's asking for those seven, nine dishes. So he converted those things to those seven, nine dishes. Mm. And it became a super successful restaurant. Super successful, doing phenomenally for them and everything. And obviously, I wasn't working with Ronnie that time. And uh, we formed a partnership in 2017. The other restaurant was Masalawala, still run by his dad and everything. Mm. It was his dad's baby. 2021 is the lease got over for the actual Masalawala. And now his dad had run the restaurant for 10 years. Little older guy, tired. So Ronnie said, you know what, we I want to, you know, just let the lease go off, close it down. And maybe we'll open this restaurant when we get the right location for it. And we'll open it under our umbrella rather than opening my dad yeah. doing it. So then we found this location, everything worked out. And Ronnie's like, do you think Masalawala will work over here? And I said, you know, I want to sit with your dad. Mm. I just cannot say yes or no right now. I sat with him and we had a very deep chat. Like I had to understand. And my one question to him was, why did you do Masalawala? And he explained me this entire thing that, you know, 2011, Bengali food and everything. So I said, your dream for Masalawala was Bengali food, right? In one line. And he says, yes. And I said, you know what? We'll cook Bengali food. That's amazing. So it took us like... Uh, multiple chats, multiple tastings. Uh, I spent a lot of time with his dad for six, seven months before we came up with the menu. Because, you know, like somebody asked me, like, how did you do this? And I said, you know, till now what was happening was that I would have a project and I would say, okay, we'll do this kind of cuisine or this and that and start working on it. But this was more like a, it was like a biographical thing. This food was about his memories. What this guy for 50, 51 years that he ate in India and in Calcutta, traveling India and everything. You know, it was all about his memories. I remember like one day he called me up at 11 p.m. in the night and he told me that, oh, I remember this is the dish I had. What was the dish? Uh, the bone marrow. Oh, yeah. So he spoke about bone marrow and, uh, you know, like I had to go next day, sit with him again, understand the thing. I had to do research on where he ate it mm. and everything. So it was a phenomenal experience for me. Because I never imagined I'll open up a restaurant with this kind of food. Yeah, Bengali. And, what is your background? If Bengali is not part I, of your heritage, I, my my. Uh, so I'll explain you. So I'm I'm actually a Gujarati. I'm from Mumbai, but I started my cooking career in Calcutta. Mm -hmm. So I've spent close to twenty months in Calcutta. So you have a experience with Bengali cuisine. Yes, I've eaten a lot of Bengali food. I've uh, there was always this inquisitiveness in me to learn new things. So that's how I learned it, and understood the food very well. And so, I used to eat a lot. <laughs> yeah, and, and a chef is always tasting. But just again, to give our, our listeners context, these seven to nine kanako dishes are from the north, Punjabi cuisine, yeah. very different from Bengali. So let's get into some actual specifics about what makes Bengali cuisine Bengali. So any cuisine in this world, not only Bengali, I'm talking about any cuisine in this world was always defined by what was geographically available over there. Right. 
you understand. So there was certain, like, if you look at Bengal, it's a coastal part of yeah. the country. Seafood. A uh, lot of seafood. They love seafood. Uh, they actually also have rivers, river over there. So the river water seafood is different. A uh, lot of mustard seeds, coconut, mustard oil, uh, green chilies, so poppy seeds. Mm. So uh, Calcutta was the first British capital of India. So when British ruled India, their first capital was actually Calcutta, not Delhi. Mm -hmm. Delhi became at a later part. But Calcutta was the first capital because it was like a port and everything was, you know, yeah. uh, going in and out from there. So Masala Wallen Sons, these Bengali dishes articulated um, with great fanfare and theatrics. Now, I have to ask you, walking into that restaurant or Adamaka or other restaurants, it really feels like you're entering a presentation and you're entering a party. You're entering um, a place where the service is going to be tableside. There's going to be movement, which I, I I think is not something we as diners consider part of Indian cooking as much. So I want to get a sense of the style of restaurants that you run and the style of service. I always say that, you know, as I said, that when I moved to this country, I moved with an intention of like, I had done fine dining all my life. And I think there is a certain amount of pretentiousness which goes in a fine dining and certain amount of saying that how will I impress somebody with mm. that thing, you know? Uh, Usually rooted in like a, a Franco-European Yes, European, uh, yeah. and any kind of Western food or new American, I would say. And it's it's it aligns with the vision of that product, you know? So that's how they do it. I wanted to do something where I'm on my own. You know, I'm on my own. I can still enjoy it. I can have good food with a very fun environment. And that's how we term all our restaurants as fun dining. Mm. So it's not casual. It's not fine. It's fun dining. It's true. You you could say that all day, put it on a deck and present it to investors. But honestly, when you're in the space, the employees, your, your staff, they're fun. There's yeah. a lot of, um, and there's also a lot of passion and pride. How do you staff? How do you staff your restaurants? I... You know, it's it's, and I'll, I'll give you an example afterwards, but let me say this one thing that, you know, we don't have any service manuals. We don't <laughs> have anything. What we brief the team is that just think that your friend is dining at your home and yeah. that's how you're serving. Yeah. You know, it has to be nothing. You don't have to stand at a 90 degree angle or the glass has to be like this. It just at the, you have to make that person sitting across or you are taking order from very comfortable. Make him feel that he's at his home. He's at mm. your home and he can do whatever he wants and just have that movement with him. That's so it. how do you give them license then and power to, to offer this kind of flexibility? Because it seems like you need to actually train them about the cuisine. You need to train them about what goes with what. But then you want to have a casualness. So there's a real tricky line to, to toe. I, I think what happens is as human beings, we think that every time we complicate something, we are making it better. Yeah. Which I, I'm not a fan of. <laughs> I genuinely want to have most simplified things in my life. And that's how we keep on doing it very simple. We genuinely don't make it complicated. Mm -hmm. Genuinely. There are times somebody will do something wrong. He'll come up and we'll say, you know what? It's a learning. Yeah, yeah. It's I a learning. It. Yeah, yeah. You know, and take it from there. And in terms of knowledge, we share everything possible as possible. You know, and we talk about it. We, uh, we, we spend a decent amount of time uh, about those things with the entire team. I have to ask you about Damaka then. Um, what's the cuisine there? Because I, I want to say that 
I felt like the flavors were slightly more uh, narrow, and it's a positive thing. It was more uh, a lot of the similar style of flavors versus Masala Wala, which felt like it was more of a broad spectrum. So Masala Wala, the best part is because it's from a specific region, that entire food belongs to that yeah, region. Yeah. Dhamaka, we call it the forgotten side of India. I love that. And when we say the forgotten side of India, we are actually getting food from the states. The When I say states, yeah, not America, states but of states India. of India, which not even restaurants in India are serving. Mm. You understand? So it's it's a very uphill task. It was a very difficult task where when I did the first draft of the menu, everybody was like, there seems to be something wrong with What's this. an example of one of the dishes that you, you really like surprised your staff when you were writing the menu? Like the pulao, yeah. the champaran meat, uh, the dokle, uh, rabbit. Yeah. Uh, those are the things nobody will do it. Pete Wells wrote at length, and I'll link to the show notes about the $200 rabbit and trying to order it. it. See, I'll explain you. Like People actually thought that we were doing it for the gimmick or something, and it wasn't about it. Uh our kitchen is very small. So, yeah. And I explained to people that the Tamaka kitchen was planned in 2019 when we didn't have, uh, you know, pandemic Spacing or anything. And all that stuff, yeah. And we don't, we didn't have the outdoor seating area. So when we were building the restaurant, for me, it was a 44-seater restaurant. And I agreed to that kitchen for a 44-seater restaurant. <laughs> now, by the time the pandemic happened and the restaurant was supposed to open, this restaurant was now 80-seater restaurant. Yeah. 36 seats had increased. And the kitchen was still the same. The kitchen size didn't increase yeah. over there. The rabbit itself, the process and cooking it, it takes a lot of time. And kitchen is so small that if we try to do more than one rabbit a night, we actually won't be able to feed at least 20, 30 people that night. Right. It takes a real, you have to commit to it. Yeah, because yeah. it's the process itself, like we have to marinate two days out. Yep. It takes six hours to cook. It's a smaller kitchen, so it takes a certain portion of the kitchen to cook that rabbit every night. What makes it so special? What's in the rabbit? You have to eat it. Okay, great. I love that. I feel like the the the, the show uh, can't be spoiled, and I, I don't want to dwell on this price tag either because that that was just like his his comment, Pete Wells. But I want to also get into some of the regions that you're representing. I think Kerala has some dishes, and Tamil Nadu has some dishes. Yeah. In, okay. Uh, uh, one more thing that you know, people talk about the pricing of it. I explain to people that it's a meal, and we yeah. specifically write it's a right. rabbit meal because. If you have four people and you order the rabbit, you are going to take food back for two days, back to you. Because this is a three and a half pounder rabbit. Oh, and, and this is the way that you dine there. There's always going to be boxes and bags leaning yes. on the table. It's, it's definitely like two and a half meals. <laughs> <laughs> I love right. it. And you, you lean into goat uh, and you have a couple goat dishes, right? At we Dom- have goat, we have mutton, we yeah. have lamb. All three are different. Remember that. Definitely. <laughs> no, they are very different. But let's talk about goat because it's something that we write about on Taste and we always are like, this is an important protein in the world, but you never see it on restaurants in New York. But you've had great success with it. Yeah, because I think our cuisine has the concept of goat. If you look at the Middle Eastern cuisine as goat, they have goat, they have lamb. What happens with us is a lot of our energy is spent on sourcing ingredients. So one of the things I do every week is I have to spend an insane amount of time and getting the right ingredient and sourcing. And so it's not like we just buy goat from one vendor and we buy it always (laughs) from there. We keep on checking every week that which vendor has a better quality goat, lamb, and then we pick it up from there. That's a very, very, very important part of your restaurant and the quality is just QC always, right? 
Yeah, I, I think what has happened is that everybody can do what we are doing, but I think the amount of effort we put in sourcing the ingredients might be more than anybody else doing it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the different regions um, that you reflect in uh, the cooking at Damaka. Like, what are some of the, the regions that you're covering that maybe we know less about? So we have dishes from Kashmir, which is the northern part of the country. We have dishes from Punjab, Delhi, Rajasthan, Mumbai. Uh, then we have dishes from the central part of India, the state of Bihar, this Madhya Pradesh, which is the central part. So these are all the regions that sincerely it focuses on. Mm-hmm. And then we have a restaurant called Sema, which actually focuses on the five states which are below. Oh, I got it. So Sema is the southern Southern restaurant. India. Got it, it, got it, got it. focuses on the five states of southern India, which is Kerala, Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, Andhra Pradesh, and Telangana. And for simplicity's sake, for our audience, is there a, for Sema, for the menu, are there ingredients that the southern cuisine is, is really reflecting? So southern cuisine uh, uses an extensive amount of coconut. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rice. Now, the rice is a very important topic in our culture. And what has happened is that every time you have walked into an Indian restaurant, you are used to eating a basmati rice, which is a long grain rice. Uh, it's a very premium product. But if you go to different parts of country, they actually use local rices. Like if if you go to someone's house in, uh, let's say, Gujarati house, my household, if you come, we actually use a different rice on day-to-day basis. But when a guest comes home, we make basmati rice because that's a premium expensive rice meant only to be served to a guest when he comes home. Right. But, but there's different grains of rice you're saying yes, for the yes. local. So if you, if you try the rice at... Uh, masala wala, it is different from the rice at Sema and different from the rice at Dhamaka. Okay. Let's talk about the cooking style of Jugad because I think that's important and it reflects uh, the way that you as the chef kind of view the dishes. What is it exactly? So Jugad is sort of a management style and basically it means to make things work. <laughs> I love it. It's like more of a flow chart. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> just like, you know, like uh, I, I think a lot of... Uh, Chefs I've worked with or individuals that I've worked with are very stunned and there's nothing wrong. It's That's their way of working where they're very stringent. Oh, if I don't have this, I'm not doing this. But the way Jugad works is we have to find the best possible option to make it work better. Mm, mm. MacGyver. Sorry? MacGyver. It's a show from the 80s and I'll, early I'll 90s. i check that out. I didn't grow up in America, so I, a lot of times people do give me reference of older things, and I'm just confused. I, okay, so it, it's it's what you just said about being able to make things work. Yeah. Um, and making things work, too, has got to be an economic principle, too, right? Because yeah. this food is not inexpensive. The sourcing, as you just said, is very important. And still, this is a low-margin business. Everyone needs to realize that. This is not a business that... Many people get rich doing, even if you're packed, it still costs a lot. So oh, is that part of Jihad? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very cost-driven business. Yeah. And I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize with Indian food is that the basic ingredients in this country for Indian food are super expensive. When I say basic ingredients, I would say cilantro, mint, ginger, and garlic. Yeah. They are insanely expensive, very expensive. Yeah. And uh, red onions. Yeah. So a lot of people don't look at this cuisine with the kind of respect it should garner or have. Yeah, we we talk a lot about eggs, we talk a lot about milk, but there's but cilantro is 
4X from 2019 right yes. now. And you've mint used is a lot of it. Mint is expensive. Ginger is expensive. Garlic is like through the roof right now. I want to talk about Rowdy Rooster. I've not been, but it's your your fried chicken idea. It's a big idea. And word on the street is pretty great. What is what is in the chicken? What are you doing there? Nothing. It's a very simple style of marination that we do with the chicken, which is uh, marinated in a yogurt base. And it's marinated for a, it's a two, two days. It's a 48-hour process. And then when it comes, we fry it up and everything. The chicken sandwich is insane, but I think one of mm. the best sandwiches, which I personally like at Rowdy Rooster, is the veg one. Oh, what's what's going on there? So it's a, it's a dish called Vada Pao. And mm. Vada Pao is this iconic dish from yep. Mumbai, where I come Definitely from. Definitely had that before. And mm. everybody has their spot for Vada Pao. So like when I go to Rowdy Rooster, I eat Vada Pao. Like there's always one Vada Pao I'll always eat. So that's my favorite thing. And with the chicken, is it dusted with a seasoning or is it more about the marinade that makes so it? It's, uh, so it's a two-part to it. It's the marination and then it's fried. And yeah. then you have a choice level from one, two, three, four, five. Interesting. And then you pick from there. The five being the spiciest, one being the least spicy. I wouldn't say mild. I'm, that's why I'm using yeah. the word least, least spicy. So least spicy to spiciest. Can there be 500 Rowdy Roosters in your lifetime We're operating in the United States? Canada, UK. I so as a concept, as restaurants, we don't want to multiply them. I, we, I get that. Yeah, I, I don't want to have one more dhamaka. I don't want to I have one that. more masala wala or anything. But uh, when we opened up Rowdy Rooster, the vision was how to, you know, uh, multiply it. We have never, as a company, are we have never done multiplication of a concept. But Rowdy Rooster. Is the first concept we want to multiply. We are actually going to open up second location in the next span of four to five months. Mm. Less where, than that, where are you doing it at? Uh, I, I don't know if I can talk about it or not okay. yet right now. But Is it close to our office? We're in Midtown. I get always confused. Close, yeah. close enough? <laughs> close enough. I would say close enough. All right. I'm not going to like bust you, bust your balls for this yeah. uh, This information. We're not eater. We, you will open when you Yeah, open. because what happens is as a company, my job is more to do with product and operations and everything. Yeah. Ronnie is into the other side yeah. of the business. So can't wait to have Ronnie on. I'm going to have Ronnie on at some point because I, yeah. I, I have quite a lot of questions for him. I think our listeners assume a successful James Beard Award winning chef like yourself is probably, um, you know, out in a, in a conference room doing, like, menu development. But I want to get a sense of, you are in your restaurants all the time. When was the last time that you had to do something, like, like very basic in a restaurant? Always. Yeah. I always have to do it. Like, I'm not joking. It just Like, give me some examples of, like, some of your day-to-day tasks running these very busy, impossible-to-book, acclaimed restaurants in a very challenging city when it comes to operating. I, you know, I, I don't have, like... Unless until I have a very specific agenda, like something like this, that I have to go to a podcast, this is my day that I come yeah. in and everything. Otherwise, I just go and I just keep on doing whatever they are doing. Like I'll help them out or if they need my help or something needs to be done. Or, uh, you know, there are a lot of times I have like, uh, I think about things and then I have to go and actually put it in place. So, yeah. Like, uh, like, you know, I'm going to India to cook. Now, in my mind for last three days, I've been just running the entire service in my mind mm. that how is every course going to go? What is going to happen? Why is it going to... And also the point of failures. You know, like what can go wrong when I'm doing this dish in this way or something like that? Because it's a brand new kitchen I'm going to go, brand new people that I'm going to be working with. Mm-hmm. So 
it just and sometimes you know there there's an idea which comes in my mind and then I'm, I just want to execute it and I'll keep on trying it. So is it stressful? It is how you look at it. I find it very fun, and I feel that failing is the most fun part of it. Interesting. <laughs> Because uh, and I always say that I the day I lost that fear to failure is that I grew as a professional and as a human being a lot. And I think whenever you have a fear of failure, you won't grow. You 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 because it's just that the mindset is very different. Yeah. I do blunders like people ask me what kind. Of, I said why well, I do. Phenomenal level blunders, like, <laughs> or like ordering the wrong this or that, or I, I, I actually like off late, like, uh, like I was ordering from a salola. Now I'm not ordering because the chef is there and everything, so mm -hmm. they handle. But uh, ordering, yeah, sometimes you forget about something. Sure. Then you run to get it or something like. So that's a normal thing. The other blunders, like multiple things, I do, and I'm, I'm not like I always say that fail as much as you want to. Trust me, keep on failing, keep on failing. That's how you learn the most. Chintana, respect that point of view. I love that. I love that honesty. It makes a lot of sense. It's also how you just stay creative because yeah. you're having to, you know, make make do with what you have and and fix things. And with that fixing, something amazing happens out of it. Oh yeah, yeah. Like like I don't know if you tried the mutton at uh, Thamaka. Did you try that oh, dish? Oh, absolutely. It absolutely. Us, it, you know, it, it it was a crazy process where people like ah, it's a cool dish, and I said, you know what? Like it it gave me a lot of sleepless nights because. It's a mutton which is cooked in a clay pot. So when we started doing that dish, I had to buy 19 clay pots of different kinds available in the market. Mm -hmm. From 19 clay pots, we came down to three clay pots. And we're talking about size and thickness varies. Or everything, just the, type the of material glaze. to everything. Yeah. Now we come down to three clay pots, but the thing was that that dish needs to be made with mutton. Mm -hmm. Until that time, we were using goat to make it because goat is readily available in the market. I presume that mutton is a very easily accessible meat in the market. So I was like, "Oh, we use goat in the restaurant, so I can order it. I can do my R and D. I don't need to buy mutton separately." When we got down to the three, I said, "You know, now let's order mutton." And uh, I went to multiple vendors, and they say, "You can't get mutton." Really, it seems like maybe Keens is buying all the mutton. Their the Keens Steakhouse is famous for their mutton, but yeah, and. We couldn't find the mutton. Huh? Then I started doing research on it. Found somebody in Charleston, but the guy said that I can only give you like a one carcass uh, every three weeks. I said, but we need to put it on the menu regular, so we'll be using at least close to two hundred pounds a week. Like, mm. can you do that? He says, Nah, I can't. Then we started looking at it. Look, we found somebody in Arizona. Arizona. Yeah. Wow. I I don't know how what he does with that, but it's actual mutton. Mutton is like aged sheep, right? Just aged to be clear, sheep. it's yeah. it's an older sheep. Yeah. A sh a sheep less than one year is lamb. A yes. sheep more than three years is mutton. And what is a sheep then? It's a puzzle. I know. It's like I'm sorry. It's yeah, like yeah. it's more like the sheep is like the broad term. Yeah. yeah lamb yeah. and mutton are the two. Yeah. Yeah. Like. So specifics. it's funny. It comes out. Then we had to go to those three dishes. Then yeah. we got the mutton. Then we started doing R and D. From there, we had to choose one pot, which was finalized. So it took a lot of time. I love it, this. Yeah, it's, it takes a crazy amount of time, and uh, and, and you know what? Well, sometimes what happens is you also do everything, 
but when you have to start executing in a restaurant, that's a different challenge altogether. Because right now you're only moking one, two dishes. Oh yeah, and like you're firing like eight of them in the first 45 minutes of service because yeah, yeah, yeah. you got that little bit of news in Grub Street, and then it's like, oh <laughs> shit, we're off to the races here. Yeah, it's it's funny, it's funny, it's it's a so it's it's a process entirely, a very phenomenal process which I enjoy. Let's hear about your trip to India. We were in the elevator, and you were telling me that this is the first time you've cooked in India in in a couple decades, right? And you're actually doing a, a couple dinners in multiple yeah, cities. Yeah, so I cooked in India in two. 2008. This is literally after 2008. I'll be cooking first time in India. Wow! So what's going on? What's going down? It's 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 um, so JW Marriotts. Yeah. And there's a company called Culinary Culture, which is a very food forward company, which promotes the chefs across the world in India. Very, uh, they are very big on you know like mm. culinary focused things and everything, which nobody in India had done till now. They are doing a very path breaking thing for Indian culinary scene, and they invited us, and it's in partnership with JW Marriotts, uh, where they have a program of Masters of Marriott Bonvoy. Nice. And uh, I'll be cooking two meals in New Delhi and two meals in Mumbai. Oh, fun. And 60 people each meal, so uh, super excited, super Wow, excited. and you're going to spend some off time traveling a little bit? Where are you going to be going? Uh, we'll be in Delhi. I don't know. My, I, I've told everybody that I genuinely don't know because I have three days of prep time for those dinners. Yeah. So I, I might not even go out much because I'll be prepping my things and everything. So I don't know and uh, what's going to happen. Then I'm from Mumbai. My brother lives in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be there for those days and then I'm going to take a break for four days. So everybody's going to come back and I'm going to stay four more days with my brother. Uh, and what's the dish you and your brother are going to be seeking out? There's got to be something. There's got to be something from home that you feel. Uh, not home, but. Uh, not my, home, right. But My favorite restaurant in the entire world is this small shop called Konkan Swad, which does coastal Indian cuisine. Very small store. Uh, the beauty is the guy who owns it, everything in that restaurant is actually made by his wife and mother at home. So he cannot even serve a lot of people. Yeah. He only serves limited number of people every day. And once it's done, it's done. So that is the meal. Like my brother told him that he's going to come and he's going to, he says, I'll block off the restaurant for him. If oh, he wants. that's nice. Yeah, because what happened is that uh, there was an Indian newspaper and they were interviewing me. And they asked me that, what's your favorite restaurant? And I happened to speak about Konkan Swad. And they were like, are you sure that's your favorite restaurant? And I said, I love that restaurant. He says, no Michelin star restaurant or anything. And I said, no, because I said, when you, when anybody asked me that, which is your favorite restaurant? What I asked myself is like, let's say somebody came and just told me you have four hours left to live now. Do whatever you want to. One thing I'll do is I'll eat that meal, I said. And that's why it's the best restaurant I love me. that word. <laughs> Hey, where's your James Beard Award medal? I mean, I feel like I was in Chicago when you got it. They put a big medal around your neck. It was like 1,100 people in the auditorium. <laughs> Where do you put it? Where is it? Uh, I think what happened is that uh, I have a daughter. She's four and a half. <laughs> so when I went, got back home, so obviously I, uh, you know, not that night, but the next day, you know, my wife spoke to me and then my wife told my daughter that, mm. oh, you know, dad got an award and everything. As soon as I come back home, she's like, where's my award? <laughs> she wanted to hold it. Yeah, she she took it. She took it. <laughs> I love that. Um, future plans. Now, you guys are always thinking about expansion. I just know it. I mean, it's in it's in your your you're talking about food and you have ideas. So with that, I know Roddy Rooster you said is going to expand. What's the region that you're going to be focusing on next? Um, I, I wouldn't say a region. Uh, so obviously, uh, Adda from Long Island City is moving to Manhattan. Yep. Uh, Rowdy Rooster is opening up, and then we are doing one more casual concept called Kebab Wala. 
Oh, cool. So kebab wala means uh, kebab guy. You know, basically a guy who cooks kebab. Uh, what happens in India is that in any lot of the cities, you can go and actually park your car in front of this guy who's making kebabs over there, eat on the trunk of your car or whatever, no seats, nothing. And it's insane. Like, I used to love to eat that. What I found missing in the market in New York, I would say about New York, not about other America, is that I couldn't find a good value for money kebab place. Mm. So you can go to places which are not expensive, but the kebabs are something that you don't want to eat. You don't enjoy eating. Yeah, there's a, like a lower quality meat or the yeah. tougher or something. Yeah, like and then you have the restaurants which will serve you kebab, but I as an individual cannot afford to eat in those restaurants maybe twice or thrice like a week. Like Laser Wolf, that place, their kebabs are dope. Yeah, but I cannot afford to eat that twice Respect, or thrice a week. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I want something that is accessible for me where I can walk in, I can pick up a kebab, I can leave. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the entire concept of Kebabwala came to our mind. And I said, you know what, let's start working on it. So it's not going to be region-focused, but it's focused on kebabs. Are you going to have a car that you, like, sell it out of? No, 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 it's, it's a proper location. <laughs> I'm kidding, it's a location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love uh, no, that. No, we already have the location. It's going to open. It's on 2nd Avenue um, uh, on the East Village. Oh, cool. So 2nd and what's Cross Street? 4th and 5th. Oh, excellent. I can't let you go and not talk about your previous job working for an international airline in India. Yeah. I've read your bio. It said, you said it was a boring job. How can airline food be boring for a chef? It seems like the ultimate challenge. No, so I'll explain you. I think uh, it's, a, it's sort of a miscommunication. I didn't meant that the food was boring. What I meant was that I had been a chef, active chef, online cooking. And then I took up this job as a food and beverage manager for an airline company. And I think what happened is that maybe that, you know, you go, you're running, you're hustling, everything. Yeah. Now, this was a desk job. Yeah. So after Spreadsheets. Numbers, spreadsheets, this, that. You know, so it was not an operational job. Mm-hmm. And I said, that part was boring. The food part was not boring. Yeah. I think that was fun. It was very challenging to make sure that the food comes out tasty and we had to go and audit things and everything. As a personality, what happened with me is from doing that active job, getting onto the desk, felt very, like, underwhelming, I would say. Mm-hmm. So, please, I think it was not the food You've part explained with... yourself. No, so, but you were actually creating dishes for an airline? Yeah, I was a food and beverage manager and... Uh, What's the airline? A Jet Airways. Okay, so for Jet, were you thinking about representing Indian cuisine in the sky? Everything. It depends on the sector and everything. So I was a specialized Indian guy over there. Like there, we had three of us on the team yeah. and uh, we had to go around the country and everything and do different menus. Like if it was an international sector, obviously the food was different and everything. So it was a very challenging job. Yeah, It was a very uh, new thing for me that I learned. Sounds like it really informed what you're doing now. One last question about airline food. Should we give it more respect? I feel like it doesn't receive any I, respect. I, I can I, I can I be honest with you that uh, I've traveled extensively in Asia. The food in Asia and airline is phenomenal quality because there's a lot of love, effort, and care goes. I wouldn't name it, but I think the airline food in America seems like it's a half-hearted job. Yeah. I, I, I literally, like, <laughs> I, I don't want to name the airline, and I can honestly say this. Like, and I'm genuinely, like, I was flying yeah. back on a nine-hour flight 
from my vacation mm. and um, uh, uh, so they served the food. They actually served a breast of chicken cold. Yeah. A whole breast of chicken mm. cold with pasta. Mm. Which I didn't understand. Because I asked them, is this a salad? They said, no, it's not a salad. It's a dish. And I said, it's cold. They said, that's how it's served. Uh, it sounds like an airline that might rhyme with smelta. Just, just saying. <laughs> it was cra- crazy. And I genuinely, and I actually, every time I now fly that airline, I ask them, uh, when they ask for the food, I'm like, is this cold or hot? Ah, uh, that's funny. <laughs> I mean, you're an expert too. I, I, I want to have you back to talk about airline food. It, it is like an... There's an infinite well of 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 interest in airlines. I think that we as listeners and consumers of media, we just love talking and thinking about flying. Yeah. I, I think if you look at – and um, the reason I'm saying this is because when I was doing that job in uh, airline company, I did – I used to do a lot of reading about airline food. But if you look at the food in 70s and 80s, it was a phenomenal product. It was a very luxurious yeah. product like a high-end restaurant. And I think what has happened over a period of time is it has kept on going, deteriorating or whatever it was. But I still say that if you travel Asia and you try the food in the airline, it's, it's, it's good quality. It's great. good quality, yeah. Chintan, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, what would that book be? So I, I can announce that, that we have... Uh, we are officially writing a book now. Well, there you go. Breaking some news here. Yeah, we are officially writing I a book. That. It's going to take us two years or something. And um, it's going to be food about our beliefs and everything. What are the details? Who's Who are you doing it with? Where, where are you, who, Do you have a writer that you're working with? Yeah, but that's the thing. I don't know these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we won't get into that. Okay. So, so it's going to be, uh, what's the concept then? Is it all of... Is it unapologetic? It's unapologetic food. Again, unapologetic Indian food. And uh, it's going to focus on specific ingredients of Indian cuisine. Uh, like we yeah. spoke about rice, you know, how there are different kinds of rice yeah. and everything. And a um, lot of very specific ingredients which are key to Indian cuisine. Cannot wait to have you back yeah. to talk about the book in a couple of years. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's, it's going to be fun. Uh, again, and just to add on, you know, before we go, that this entire concept of like if you look at our T-shirt that says unapologetic Indian, but the company is called unapologetic foods. And the vision is that how we can empower people to do, let's say, unapologetic uh, Filipino yeah. or unapologetic Vietnamese yeah. or Thai or French or anything, you know. Yeah. So that's the broader spectrum of the vision that we have with the company. So you're thinking maybe bring in some other voices, some other chefs. Yes, yes. The day we find the right talent is what we want to do with that. Yeah, you know, like uh, like if you look at Sema, uh, Vijay is leading the entire bandwagon over there. You know, he's the chef partner over there and everything. And people ask me, why didn't you do it? And I said, you know what? I have grown up in western part of the country. I've traveled extensively in the southern part, northern part, everything. And I'm very. Co- I've done a lot of research for the other cuisines, but not on the southern food. So if I would have done that project, I would have delivered it at like. 75, 80%, mm-hmm. not at 100%. You needed somebody from that region, grown up over there, knows the... With act- some family recipes, let's be yes. real. Some real yeah, family that, recipes. That's the thing, you know, it's it's a family recipes that he has grown up with. And he was so passionate about things and it, it, and it shows in the product what he's doing over there. So always we'll find somebody right as a talent like Vijay. We'll, we are always there to do it with him. 
Chintapadhyay, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot for inviting me and it's an honor to be here. Okay, Matt, three things. What's your first thing? Okay, my first thing I wanted to talk about, I've referenced this before on the show. I think I was talking to um, Hannah Goldfield about this place, is S&P Lunch. You familiar with it? Yes, I would love to talk about it. Yeah, I want to talk about it because I think I had, I had not been there in previous conversations. Now I had been there, so let's go. Okay, S&P in general is the former Eisenberg's uh, lunch counter located on Fifth Avenue, right by the Flatiron. Long time... Uh, Delhi, uh, if you should go to the website, check out their menu. There's like a whole story about this changing of hands of the space. And it's pretty remarkable. It's very funny. Um, they kind of like throw shade at some of the, the, the bad people who owned it, which I love. Um, but in general, Eisenberg's was a really classic place to have really mediocre food. I, I did not like the food there. And it's like classic Jewish deli food. Yeah, like the previous place was was doing like kind of classic Ashkenazi, but also doing some more diner stuff like burgers and fries. Hmm. And, you know, it was really fun to have a meeting, especially out of town or like let's do a coffee there or like have some breakfast. But it never was 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 a great place for the food. Fast forward to four or five months ago this past fall when the folks from Court Street Grocer took over the space Um, with great, I would say, anticipation from many in the food world in New York. Uh, And the question was, is what are they going to do? Are they going to make a modern delicatessen? Are they going to do like a mile end? Um, Or are they going to do something what they ended up doing, which is preserving most of the aesthetic and paying tribute to some of those early dishes on the menu from like 1921 when it opened? That's exactly what, like, I wanted also because I, I love Court Street Grocer sandwiches like I think a lot yeah. of people do. And, and to me, a tuna melt is, like, my favorite thing to get. So I, when I went, I was really excited to eat those. And I'm curious, like, what you ordered and what you liked. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, we started our meal with this crazy thought. We were like, let's do the half cantaloupe with cottage cheese. Oh, my God, what? <laughs> yeah, they have that. They sell that there, which is, like, like Palm Springs spa food. And you bought it. Definitely. I bought it. Um, and it was it was fine. But, like, that, that kicked off the meal, and we were like, okay, this is going to be— this was our choice, and it was a choice, but man, the meal was 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 good. We had a great meal. A couple highlights, and I want to get into your because you've been there. You went there in December. I was there in January just to timestamp it. The crispy potato knish, man, very good. And I'm not like a big knish, like I'm not gonna like do a knish crawl, but I, I thought it was excellent. It was very crispy. It was crispy and then like fluffy on the inside, or more of a dense consistency. Definitely fluffy. Definitely felt like it was had this that crust that you can break through, which I loved. Had some cold borscht, very standard. I think Vasalka's is still the number one seed in my mind. Um, had some chopped liver, yo, like great. Like, but you really can't like mess up chopped liver too much. What kind of bread did you have it on? Uh, definitely rye. Mm-hmm. Had to be uh, to go, keep going into my one meal, and we'll get into your meal. This was a revelation. 50-50 egg salad, tuna salad. Wow. Do you know that they do that there? No, but I think that's really cool. Club style, so layers of each on each bite. With a, with a bread layer in between to keep yeah, it separate. I believe so. I have to look back at my photos, but I think that's how they did it. For modesty, yeah. <laughs> For modesty. Um, didn't think about that combination. Had never really pondered egg and tuna together in that way. Delicious. It's kind of like a niçoise. Yeah, good call. Yeah. Um, my favorite thing, very simple, um, cream cheese and green olive sandwiches on very light 
white bread, like milk bread almost. I'm going to like run for the door. Everything you're saying is like exactly not what I would order, but I, I love that you did this. <laughs> I know. We we went, we didn't have any corned beef. We we didn't do any of the big boy sandwiches. We were kind of like eating um, a lot of the Ashkenazi like appetizing dishes that mm. they're that they're doing there, not the deli dishes. Um, it felt like we were doing more appetizing. And they had a banging rugula. Not as good as my mother-in-law's, but pretty fucking good. You have to say that, though, legally. Have to legally, but, like, it's it's pretty legit. Okay, so that's my January experience there. I know we're going a little long on the first one, but what did you have at S&P? I went in December after going to the MoMA, so I just had, yeah. like, a quick lunch. I split a tuna melt and a matzo ball soup, and it was cold out, and yeah. it was exactly what I wanted. Oh, and I had a, a fountain mm. diet Coke. Oh, I love a good fountain diet. I had a phosphate. I think. I, I don't know what that is. Like a chocolate phosphate, like chocolate, basically soda water and chocolate syrup. Oh, so it's like, like a, an egg, egg cream. cream. Egg cream, I think they call it. I just actually. got into like a huge debate with somebody about this because they were trying to tell me that an egg cream had egg and cream in it. And no. I said, it's a misnomer. It has neither. It has neither. I don't know what it means, but I, I think my mom called it phosphates. I think in the Midwest, they call them phosphates. Cool name. Cool name. Egg cream is cool too. Uh, go there. It's great. What's your What's your first thing? My first thing is a dessert that I had recently that I have not been able to stop thinking about, which is um, my friend Tanya Bush that I do the Cake Scene magazine with. Shout. And I did an event um, last weekend. We did food for our friends, like warehouse warehouse rave, basically. Nice. I was like, what does what do people want to eat out at night? And the answer that Tanya came up with, which is so genius, is a Cara Cara orange olive oil cake pop coated in pop rocks. Wow, a pop, like on a stick. Yeah, we called them cake pops, like with <laughs> all caps, just kind of like shout it to people, you know? Um, but it was psychedelic because it had this uh, pop rock, you know, explosive exterior that was adhered with some milk chocolate or white chocolate, yeah. I believe. Uh, and then the cake itself was really uh, moist and light, and it just was uh, really fun to watch people eat, which was, um, you know, my highlight of the, the evening. The highlight of the evening. No, this was at a rave. What time were you serving these pop rocks at? Well, I wanted to dance, so we served them from, like, 10 to mm. 1, uh, but I think most people probably want to eat as a break later in the night, yeah. but I just don't want to be doing that. So we made, like, a smaller amount, knowing that we would sell out by then, and that we could be free, which was, I think, a good call. Sounds really good. Yeah. I'm so gel. Nice. What's your second thing? Second thing, I was out in San Francisco wrapping up the reporting for Korea World. I was in L.A. and Portland as well. Really great trip. Can't wait to share it with everyone. But I went to Queens SF, this amazing, amazing Korean restaurant in the Inner Sunset. Yeah, inner. I think it's the Inner, it's the inner Sunset. Yeah. Amazing place. They call themselves like a superette, right? They do. It's cool. They they call themselves a superette. And Edo and Kim and Clara Lee, they're like changing the game with the way that retail and restaurant merge. Um, I think San Francisco is a great place to do it because, frankly, San Francisco's Korean restaurant scene has been less written about and less acknowledged than other parts of the West Coast. And I think that they're doing something special um, by offering a line of products that they curate from Korea and they create themselves, gojujan, gojugaru, pancake mix, lots of cool things. And then, of course, they have a great like bottle shop there, so lots of cool wines, drinks, all that kind of stuff. But really the highlight for me was the cooking because what they're doing is some of the, the, the dishes that I think some may not really associate with Korean restaurant in America. We're so still tied and married to barbecue and even chige, like like soups uh, and stews. But what they're doing is like more of this like hearty, snackier, 
Um, one is a Gilgari toast, which is insane. It's so freaking good. What's the eating experience of it? Basically, it's an overstuffed sandwich with uh, an omelet um, and uh, cheddar cheese mm. and some strawberry jam or raspberry jam uh, and cabbage and sugar. So it's an interesting mix that I think is very popular in Korea and you see it on the street and it's kind of folded over and then put into plastic and then opened up and you're like at the whole like that overhead Instagram shot that everyone wants. Uh, Overstuffed sandwiches playing really well in Korea right now and they're doing an amazing one there at Queens. Sounds great. Um, I have to also shout out for them um, just Edo and Claire, the way that they operate. I think they are classy and I think that they are innovative and they're humble. And there's just like all these adjectives I'm saying add up to a restaurant that I hope gets the recognition it deserves. So in like the Korean community, I feel like they are well regarded and known. But like outside of it, it's not as popular. And there's other restaurants that get way more press who are doing Korean American food. So I hope that people check them out. Yeah, me too. What's your next thing? My next thing is just like a quick tip that I have been telling my friends about lately that I feel like I might as well evangelize to the larger community, which is that I really am into drinking kombucha when I travel um, for like digestive health purposes and also to be like connecting with like what are the fermentation freaks doing in different cities that I go to because I think that's like the people I want to connect with the most. And when I was just in Mexico City, I was drinking a lot of really delicious local kombucha. Um, This one brand that I really liked was called Taikuma that I got at Supercop, which is the grocery store attached to Marisol that the Masali Maiz people do. So that was really delicious. And I I don't know if this is scientific, but I feel like introducing like the local microbacteria to your microbiome when you're traveling is just like a good way to make sure that all the food's going to get along with you. So I just wanted to to mention that. I love that strategy. Sounds like Mexico City's got a really nice booch scene. Yeah, they do. And also, you know, like tapache and these other kind of like cultural fermented beverages are really delicious too. Yeah. I agree with you. I think I've read, and, and when I travel, drinking a lot of local water, um, change, like, especially with different pH, it just changes the way your system works. Not mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would drink like the tap water in Mexico yeah. City specifically, yeah. but I think in general, all of the fermentation and the like probiotics you can be eating um, taste really good. It's just, and also, you know, like do right by yourself. Yeah. It's great to, to drink a local um, probiotic. Yeah. Great tip. Hot tip. Hot tip on traveling. <laughs> What's your third thing? Okay, quickly, my friend Steve and Stacy, they went to New Zealand for a month in January. They brought us back the Cadbury Curly Whirly Squirrelies. Whoa, say that three times fast. Yeah, right? <laughs> it just rolls off, actually. They must have, like, like tested that. I can actually say it. Curly Whirly Swirlies. Curly Whirly Swirlies. Unbelievable Cadbury product. Unbelievable. It's Okay, it's chocolate. What's going on? Basically, these are worms. They are caramel worms that are covered with a pretty nice level of chocolate, like a thicker layer of coating. Um, And honestly, I could not stop eating the bag because there was so much caramel in each bite, each worm. Mm. Was it like a gooey caramel or a hard caramel? So here's a it's a great pointed question. Basically, it starts hard, then gets gooey. It's holding structure, and you're biting in, and then with the, like, temperature of your mouth, it's actually becoming, like, more of a of a Rolo center. Oh, I want to eat this so badly. 
they're basically Rolos, but way better. Yeah, I feel like the, they seem like they have a good uh, shape to be grabbed with your fingers and just like flung into your mouth. That's what I'm picturing. Great, great call. Aerodynamic. That restaurant Rolos, do they do a Rolos dessert? Um, I'm not sure, but I will investigate. I've always wondered. That's just total aside. What do you think about chocolate-covered gummy worms? Not for me, Not but for I appreciate the audacity. <laughs> it, is a, it is a choice. Mm-hmm. What's your last one? My last one is not quite food-related, but I just have been loving this book so much that I just finished called How Far the Light Reaches by Sabrina Imbler, who's a science journalist who writes a lot about um, oceanic life and marine life, and it's a kind of a blend of nonfiction and personal memoir. And the reason why I think it counts is that they are writing about things that we sometimes eat, um, such as octopus oh. <laughs> or sturgeon. So I think uh, that that's like the way in. But um, uh, I don't recommend it to make you feel differently about the food that you're eating. I recommend it just because I think it's really beautiful writing that is kind of grounding human experiences, uh, such as being non-binary or queer or multiracial um, with like experiences in the animal world that relate mm-hmm. to that. And I just loved reading it so much. When you were telling me a little bit about it uh, last week, it sounds like the writing itself is is extremely rhythmic and it has a really like great tone to it yeah i have a a habit of sending voice memos to certain people Mm -hmm. in my life when i'm reading something that i really like and i had to stop because i just kept on sending off um Mm -hmm. quotes i think from the chapter on feral goldfish which is the introduction which i think is so cool talking about the way that we think of goldfish as um stupid basically and not have any memory and like not able to do much except for die in the bowl but that um a lot of people release their goldfish into the wild when they don't want to take care of them anymore Mm -hmm. and that these feral goldfish can become giant and have memories up to three months and swim to all these different spaces and just like the potential to have more that we know about um which i think is like just nice to think about in general when you flush a goldfish down the toilet live is that when you is that what you mean by Releasing oh, it? I'm flushing sounds a little aggressive. It sounds aggressive. I think it's more of like taking your goldfish to the Prospect Park dog beach or mm. to like a river or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not really sure about the flushing. Yeah, that doesn't sound very humane. Now you're saying the Prospect Park dog beach is there? Were there feral goldfish in there? Oh, I don't know, but I just saw like a a tweet or something about an alligator in yeah. Prospect Park. Is that real? Uh, it's real. They said it was probably a pet, which. Makes sense. Not a lot of naturally grown or living crocodiles in Manhattan and Brooklyn. How big was it? I didn't, I didn't get to that point, but it, it seemed like it was um, on the loose. I feel like it must not be that big because that would be in the headline if it was like six-foot alligator <laughs> on the loose. It was four. Oh, four? yeah. Shalia, bringing in the four. Like It's four. Four what, feet? What do you got? What do you got? You're like, like, yeah, I'm like, just up on my gator news. You're up on the can, gator. can you tell um, us? <laughs> <laughs> so apparently they found it in the lake and it was four feet. And I sent it originally to my partner because he's like obsessed with alligators. But then it got kind of sad because like I guess it was like really malnourished because it's mm. been obviously like that's not like a freezing lake in New York City is like not an ideal environment for like an animal from like the Everglades. Wow. Um, but hopefully he finds a new home. I'm so hung up on this. Like, was it four feet when it was dropped into the lake? And if so, how do you transport an yeah. alligator that big? Or did it grow that to that size in the lake? And if so, what was it eating? What was it eating? Oh, yeah. No. Was it was it, it was eating terrorizing, like, small Brooklyn yeah. children? All the Yorkies. All the Yorkies. <laughs> Eliza and Shalia, thank you for joining. Appreciate it. Always. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. 
The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 